morning. Welcome to Woodside Community Church. I'm excited to be here. Hope you are too. Uh, we should be excited about studying God's Word. Uh, I, I know I am. Um, so it's going to be a, a good time, hopefully. We're going we're gonna to continue our journey through the book of Mark. All right, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. We're in the middle of five consecutive conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, right? Jesus is earning quite a reputation. He's already earned a reputation as a blasphemer, a friend of sinners, an apostate from religious tradition like fasting, and now this morning he's going to be accused of being a Sabbath breaker. And all of this is going to culminate in our last verse this morning with the religious leaders conspiring together about how they're going to take Jesus out. So this morning the focus of our two stories is on the Sabbath and Jesus' relationship to it. So very similar to last week, we're going to see Jesus make some very audacious claims about himself. And then we're going to finish by looking at those claims and then the response that those claims demand. So we're in Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. You can find it, uh, put it inside your bulletin there. You can follow along as I read. This is God's Word. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And then the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this church and this opportunity to, to come together and to worship you and to fellowship and to study your word. Father, I pray that you would move me aside and that you would speak. Father, I pray that you would show us what you want us to learn about your son uh, this morning uh, through this passage. Pray that you would get all the glory, Father, and you would be honored by this time, and that your spirit would just would work in this room. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so before we begin, we've got to talk about the Sabbath. We've got to figure out what the Sabbath is. Kind of in our day, we're generally indifferent to all things kind of Sabbath-related. So we don't quite really understand kind of what is going on here if we don't understand the Sabbath. Remember we said last week, Sabbath regulation, it comes from the Ten Commandments. Right? It's the fourth commandment, and it is the longest of all the commandments. And it basically just says that Israel was to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and to not do any work on it. That's pretty much it, right? Simple enough. There were two particular practices that defined the Jewish people back then and set them apart from kind of all the other surrounding nations. Circumcision and the Sabbath. Even more so than fasting last week, Sabbath observance was absolutely central to Judaism. Alright, so we've got to get that in our heads. We're not just thinking some small, minor, kind of secondary issue like we kind of sometimes treat the Sabbath. No, this is like central, core, 
key doctrine that these guys uh, were discussing. So we go to church on Sundays, right? It's Sunday today. The Sabbath was on Saturday. But it actually went from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. That was the 24-hour Sabbath period. And that's if we briefly mentioned some of the kind of crazy rules that these guys came up with about all these different things that, that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. They tried as best as they could to make up a rule for every single possible issue that you would encounter on the Sabbath. They had come up with 39 different classes of work, different 39 different types of things that you could not do on the Sabbath. There were obvious ones like you couldn't go hunting, or if you had already gone hunting, you couldn't butcher the animal. Then there were some kind of more strange ones like you couldn't tie or loosen a knot. So if your shoe kind of got loose, you're in trouble, you just got to leave it, no, no messing with knots. You weren't allowed to journey on the Sabbath, not just walk. You weren't allowed to journey, which they defined as 1,999 paces from your home. Right? So anything within that distance, you could walk to. Outside of 1,999 paces, you couldn't go there because that would be a journey and that would be work. But... They wanted to walk more than 1,999 paces. It was about half a mile, I think. So they came up with this other rule. They said it, the, the, the thing was home. You had to be within your home. So they were like, well, if you go to someone else's home within 1,999 paces, and you're like, need your toothbrush and your deodorant or a few other things, that place was then now your temporary home. So you could go 1,999 paces from your actual home, to the temporary home, and you could go 1,999 paces from the temporary home to another place, and you could just keep depositing stuff everywhere and travel as far as you want, right? So they had all these crazy rules to, to get by kind of these, these regulations, but they were really serious about making sure that nobody did work on the Sabbath. I mean, you know, we still kind of, they still have some of these crazy rules today. Like, you can't press any buttons or flip any switches on the Sabbath, because that starts a little bit of a spark. Right? And sparking is the same thing as starting a fire, which was one of the 39 categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, I'm from the South, remember? So a couple months ago, when I first visited someone in a hospital up here, I had my first encounter with a Sabbath elevator. Have you ever seen these things? I have, ne I have never seen one of these before. But these are elevators that work normally on six days a week. But on Saturday, these, these um, elevators, they run automatically. And they just stop at every single floor the whole day so that you don't have to press a button or do any work, right? So that's a Sabbath elevator. And the point I simply want to make is that none of these things are rules that can be found in God's law, right? These are all man-made additions to God's law that people would kind of elevated to the level of God's law. So God's law wasn't clear enough. It wasn't comprehensive enough uh, for these people. So they came up with all of these other additions to help God's law out. And I will help you out here a little bit, God. We'll, we'll kind of add some other stuff to your law. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had done here. So the disciples, they're walking through a grain field. First, your translation might say they were walking through a cornfield. Right, do you know anything about corn? Where did we get corn? Right, well, we got it here. It's from America, and we find corn about 1,500 years after Jesus. Right, so there are no cornfields in Jerusalem or Israel. They didn't have corn. No microwave popcorn, none of that, you know, none of the really good caramel popcorn. They didn't have this stuff. Corn wasn't discovered for 1,500 more years, so they weren't walking through a cornfield. People will kind of take this sometimes like, oh, there's a mistake in the Bible. They called it cornfields, and they didn't have corn. Well, it's not, it's not a mistake in the text. It's just a poor translation choice, right? It's, it's a grain field. Right? They were walking through like a field of wheat 
or they were walking through a field of barley. And like as we've seen, with the journeying, that may in and of itself have been a breach of the Sabbath law. But the real problem was they were plucking grain. Right now, plucking grain in and of itself, not a problem. They're specifically, you go back and read in Exodus, there was laws set up that people could, you know, if they were hungry, they could walk through and pick a few things um, from your fields. And that was perfectly allowed. But it wasn't allowed on the Sabbath. Right? Plucking was reaping, and reaping was work. Right? So no reaping on the Sabbath. And somehow, I don't know how, the Pharisees are just ready to catch these guys. They're like hiding in the, in the weeds. They're kind of just like waiting and watching. And, you know, this is kind of really annoying, right? Have you ever known one of these people that's just like the morality police? They're always just kind of waiting and ready to, to catch you messing up or making a mistake somewhere. And they love to kind of spring on you like, ha-ha, you, you did this wrong. And, you know, people like that, they're really frustrating. But, but that's what the Pharisees were like. They're hiding and they're following Jesus and they're just ready to catch him in the act. They know they're going to catch this guy so that they can accuse him. So they catch his disciples and then they question him there in verse 24. They say, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? First, you've got to notice, right? The disciples hadn't broken any of God's actual commandments. Okay? They had broken the Pharisees' addition to God's commandments. They hadn't broken God's law. They had broken man's law. But Jesus doesn't even point that out. Look at his answer in verse 25 and 26. Have you never read... What David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, I think most people, when they think of Jesus, they think of him as super serious all the time, kind of like a stick in the mud. I don't think that's true. If you really read the Gospels and pay attention, Jesus kind of had a little bit of an edge to him. He kind of had a sense of humor sometimes. And I think it's coming out right here a little bit. Do you see what he says? He says, have you never read? Who is he talking to? And he's talking to the Pharisees. Of course they've read this. They had it memorized. These guys knew their Bibles better than any of us have ever known our Bibles. And he says, I know. You guys never read this? I think he's being a little bit, he's kind of giving them a little nudge. He's being a little bit kind of sarcastic here. He knows they have read it. He says, had you never read? Of course they had. They, they knew exactly the story that he was talking about. And he selects the story very purposefully. He knew that the Pharisees revered everything about King David. King David was the model king that they, that they wanted and they desired. They would never accuse King David of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus points out that what his disciples are doing is no different than what David and his followers did. And notice what Jesus is implicitly claiming here. By using the story of David, the king of Israel, the guy that they all hold up as kind of the ideal king, as his justification, he is at minimum elevating himself to the level of King David. It was fine for David to do it. Well, it's fine for me to do it as well. And if, and if you know anything about kind of the Old Testament and what it says about the Messiah, you know that he is implicitly claiming to be the Messiah here. The Messiah throughout the Old Testament is, is like intimately connected with David. And we're told will come through the line of David. And Jesus says, I am that promised Messiah. But, hold that thought. Let's, let's keep going. This is where it kind of really starts to get good. Look at 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Jesus tells the story of David to kind of vindicate the action of his followers, and then he draws two very important conclusions about the Sabbath. 
The first one. What does it mean that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? What means that people are not made for Sabbath rules, but that the Sabbath was given in order to bless Israel and to enhance their well-being. He's correcting the Pharisees' crippling mistake that made the law and the Sabbath, Sabbath this burdensome yoke on human existence. He is recovering the true intent and the true meaning of the Sabbath as an aid and a guardian of life. The Sabbath was initially designed, it was supposed to be this gracious gift that freed people from unending cycles of constant labor. It was supposed to be a blessing. It was supposed to be a required rest. Can you imagine if your job all of a sudden on Monday started requiring that you took one hour naps every single day? Right? That would be awesome. Right? I would love to be able to do that. Can you imagine how excited you would be about getting forced to rest and to nap at work? That's basically what the Sabbath is. Right? you got to remember, these guys don't have five-day work weeks and two-day weekends. Right? That's more of a kind of a recent construction. Right? Everyone worked all the time. And Jesus, or God, gives this Sabbath as an opportunity for forced rest. It was supposed to be a blessing. It was supposed to be a gift. It was supposed to be for their benefit and their well-being. He wanted Israel to have the Sabbath to set them apart from the surrounding nations and so that they could rest. So then how ridiculous is it to take this opportunity, this gift of rest, and then make it a burden? The rule was simply to rest. But the Pharisees had added so many other rules, they had made it so complicated that the Sabbath was more work than the rest of the week. And to do such a thing to God's good gift was just to prove that they didn't really understand God and they didn't understand God's kind of design for His people. The Sabbath was made for man. Right? It was a gift. So anything that changes that and makes it um, kind of more of a work and a burden is to be rejected. Jesus here, He's starting kind of the process of completely reworking and rejecting the entire system that the Pharisees had kind of set up to justify themselves. But Jesus is not done yet. He says something even more audacious in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Alright, this is our first encounter with, with this title, the Son of Man. Right, this is another title that Jesus frequently uses to describe himself. It comes out of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And there the, the Son of Man is said to have dominion and glory and a kingdom. It's said that all people and nations would serve him. It says that his dominion would be an everlasting dominion which would never pass away and that his kingdom would never be destroyed. <laughs> Jesus is calling himself that guy, right? That's, that's a pretty bold statement. But that's not it. He also says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Right? Who instituted this whole Sabbath thing? Genesis 2.3 says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. God is the one who instituted and regulates the Sabbath. But here we have Jesus once again making these huge claims. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He is claiming something that only God can claim. He is claiming that He is God. He's the one who created the Sabbath. He is the one who gave them the blessing of a day of rest. Because He is not subject to their ridiculous regulations concerning it. He created it. It's His to do with it what He pleases. And he demonstrates that in the rest of our passage. Look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. I'm just going to summarize it quickly. 
It's the Sabbath. Jesus, he's, he's still in the synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, again, they're just they're watching. They're waiting. They're ready to catch Jesus making a mistake. They'd already caught the disciples in our previous story. Now they're, now they're ready to catch Jesus himself breaking the law. And Jesus, he's no dummy. All right? He knows exactly what is going on. But he could not care less what the Pharisees think. Look at his words in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill. And Jesus is just reiterating what he said a few verses earlier. What's the purpose of the Sabbath? Is it for good or is it for evil? Is it for rules or is it for rest? And he says it's for good and without hesitation, knowing exactly what it will cost him in the future, he heals the man. And in one fell swoop, he confirms his authority over the Sabbath. He further demonstrates that he's God, and he mocks the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. Now, before we turn to verse 6 and spend a little time there as we close, I want to draw a few quick conclusions from these two stories. The big, looming question that you should all be thinking and wondering is, well, what about the Sabbath, right? What do we do with it today? How does the Sabbath apply to us in 2013 New York City? An excellent question. And I'll confess right up front, this is a hotly debated issue in Christian circles. Right? Intelligent, godly men disagree on the question of the Sabbath. And I have no problem confessing that I'm still kind of figuring out some of the specifics of how this exactly works. This is an extremely complex and complicated issue. So it's good for us to hold some things with a loose hand. All right, I am not going to die on a hill for my beliefs about the Sabbath. But I will die on a hill for the gospel, for the deity of Christ, for the Trinity and things of that nature. I am sure about those things. So I'm going to adamantly proclaim the things that I have no doubt about. But on things that I'm a little less sure, I'm gonna, I'll let you know what I believe that the text is teaching and that I'm open to, to learning kind of more about that. So with that said, here's just a few quick thoughts on the Sabbath today. Remember last week we talked about it. The whole Bible is about Jesus, right? Quit thinking of the New Testament about Jesus and the Old Testament about, uh, who knows, this other stuff. No, the whole thing is about Jesus. The Old Testament foreshadows and it points forward to the coming Messiah, to Jesus Christ. And then the New Testament is explicitly about him. He has come. And he tells us he doesn't come to destroy or cancel the Old Testament and the law. He says he comes to fulfill it. Now again, that is an extremely rich and deep theological issue that we're going to cover at some point in the future, but, but we don't have time this morning. But, so we've got to focus on the Sabbath for just a second. In the Old Testament, when you see God making a covenant with people, he generally often gives a sign of that covenant. He gives Noah, remember, he gives Noah the rainbow when he makes this covenant with Noah. When he makes a covenant with Abraham, he gives them the sign of circumcision. It is the sign to mark that covenant. And it seems that the Sabbath was the sign that God gives to Moses and Israel when he makes the covenant with them on Mount Sinai after the Exodus. God says in Exodus 31, 13 and 17, he says, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between you and me. And he continues, It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. And since it is very clear from the New Testament that with the coming of Jesus, 
we are no longer under the regulations of the Mosaic Law. Right? Things about like the sacrificial system and about the clean food and the cleanliness laws. These things, Jesus says, no longer apply to us. So it also then makes sense that we would no longer be under the sign of the Mosaic Covenant as well. And these things, Paul tells us, were shadows that pointed us forward to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, we don't need the shadows. The reality is here. But don't ever take my word for it. All right? let's, let's look at a few passages. I'm going to give you three. You should write these down. You can look at them and see what you think about them and study this for yourself. I'm going to give you three passages that I think kind of make this point for us. First in Romans 14.5. Romans 14.5. Paul's writing and he says... He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Listen, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was serious. Right? The punishment for breaking the Sabbath could be death. They took Sabbath regulations very seriously. So if the Sabbath was still binding on us today, would Paul be sitting here saying, well, it's, you know, it's a matter of personal um, conscience. No, I, I don't think that he would. Next, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Alright, that's pretty clear. Sabbath rest remains. Alright, what is it? Verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But what does entering God's rest mean? It means being saved by the work of Jesus in our place. It is us resting in the work that Jesus did for us. We can't do it. We can't do the work. He can, so we rest in the work that He has done on our behalf. So the Sabbath points us forward to Jesus and the eternal rest that we have in Him based on the work that He has done for us. And then I think Paul makes this very clear in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. He writes... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Listen, we, people would generally say, oh, you know, thou shalt not judge. No, that's, that's just not true. Right? We're, not, we're told to not judge unrighteously. We're told very clearly that we are to judge on the correct standards, biblical standards. Paul tells us very clearly that we are to judge other believers based on the standard of the Bible. Not running around picking and choosing, but if someone is doing something wrong, he says, listen, get rid of that person. That involves judging. All right? Paul very multiple times says, you know, judging rightly, judging rightly is important. And here he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of the Sabbath. All right? Paul has no issue saying we are to judge when there's a clear biblical command. But here he says, let no one pass judgment on you based on your beliefs about a Sabbath. So apparently it's not a clear, obvious, biblical command that applies to us today. But he goes on in verse 17. This makes it clear. And these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath is the shadow. The reality, the substance is Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus has come, now that we have the reality, we don't need the shadow. So that's really quickly why I, why I think the Sabbath is no longer binding on us. Plus, listen, the Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. 
God says, we read it in Genesis 2-3, He blessed the seventh day and made the seventh day holy. So if you're going to be really strict about this Sabbath stuff, you better start going to church on Saturday, right? Because nowhere are we told in the Bible that we can shift the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, right? This is not the Sabbath. Early on, the church shifted to Sunday. Why? Because that was the day of the resurrection. That is when Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Our focus is not on the Sabbath. Our focus is on Jesus and the resurrection. And that is why we gather together and meet on Sundays. This is not the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. We are celebrating the resurrection. We are celebrating the work of Jesus Christ. And we are resting in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus is the better Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. We are no longer bound to the shadow. But that doesn't mean we can forsake gathering together regularly. We are specifically commanded that we must. That doesn't mean that rest is not important. The Sabbath was God's idea. Rest is a good idea. We need rest. You cannot work 7, 16 hours a day every week. Rest is good for us. It is good for us to set aside a, a day for rest and worship and service of the Lord and helping others. That's what the Sabbath was supposed to be about. And it is good for us to do those things as well. Now, that was really quick, and I'm sure you have tons of questions about it. If you do, go ask BJ after the service, and he'll answer all your questions for you. I'm just kidding. I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, and we'll kind of cover this more in detail kind of as we kind of go along. But that's just really quickly why um, what I think about the Sabbath. Um, but as we wrap up, I want to get back into our text. And I want to sit there and camp out and focus on verse 6 uh, for our last few minutes. This is where we see the response to Jesus and what he has done and said. Like we've been saying, I've said this a few times. There are only two responses to Jesus that make any sense. And here we have one of them. Remember last week, we said Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. And we see that here in our final verse. The Pharisees are coming together now and they're conspiring with the Herodians. Right? And these guys are going to try to figure out how they can take Jesus out. They've had enough. We've now had five different consecutive conflicts between Jesus and the religious people, and it culminates in their desire to destroy him. But look at who they are working with all of a sudden. The Herodians. Listen, I don't know if you know about your first century Jewish history, but the Pharisees would never work with the Herodians. All right, these two groups absolutely hated each other. They were diametrically opposed to each other. And these two groups for us today perfectly represent the two main categories of people that Jesus offends. First, who were the Herodians? And why did they hate the Pharisees so much? Herod is the king at this time. We'll meet him shortly in a few chapters, but he's basically a puppet king. Right, he's a king that Rome has put into place to kind of work for them and serve them. He's not really actually the king. He's not really the guy in charge. He's just kind of serving and working for them. And the Herodians, obviously, were then the supporters of Herod. They were a secular, non-religious political party that was basically working for and with Rome. The enemy. Right? And we saw this a couple weeks ago with the tax collectors. Working for the enemy, not a good thing. And the conflict then with the Pharisees, I think, is pretty clear. They were the super-religious haters of everything to do with Rome. And the Herodians were the super-secular supporters of Rome. And they did not get along 
except when it comes to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus terribly offends them both. But he offends both of them in two completely different ways. And again, these two groups well describe for us the two categories of people that Jesus generally offends. He offends both the non-religious and he just as much offends the religious. The non-religious and the religious. Jesus offends you non-religious people by saying, quite simply, that you are a sinner. And that is the worst possible thing that you can say to people these days. We live in the postmodern world of tolerance and relativity. And all that means is basically that we live in a world that thinks everybody is right. right? We live in a world that says, you know, whatever you believe is true for you, whatever I believe is true for me, and that's okay. There is no absolute right or wrong. There is no good or evil. You can just kind of do whatever you want. And the only thing that you cannot do, the one thing that you can't do or you can't say is to claim that there are absolutes or that there is a right way to live or that there is then a wrong way to live. The most offensive thing you can say to a woman these days is that you do not have the right to choose whether or not to kill that baby. The most offensive thing you can say to a young person today is that it is wrong for you to sleep around with whoever you want. The most offensive thing you can say to a homosexual person today is that your lifestyle is wrong. This is how the gospel offends non-religious people. It says that God exists and that he cares about our actions. It says that there is a right way to live so that there must also then be a wrong way to live. Actions matter. Morals matter. How we live matters. It says that you are a sinner and you are separated from God. And non-religious people hate this. Have you ever heard this? Who are you to tell me how to live? That's kind of the, the general feeling of our day. The gospel is offensive because it says you cannot just go on doing whatever you want. Jesus says, repent. And he says, follow me. And just as Herod in a few chapters will have John the Baptist beheaded for saying the same thing to him, here the Herodians are now desiring to kill Jesus because of what he says to them. So notice that it is the bad news of the gospel that offends the non-religious people. It is the sin and the separation from God that offends the non-religious. But the gospel also equally offends the religious. Don't think you're off the hook just because you're religious. It equally offends us religious people as well, but in a completely different way. It is actually the good news of the gospel that offends religious people. Take the Pharisees. They're our model. They have, we've seen this already. They weren't offended that Jesus called people to repent and to act a certain way. They loved that. The Pharisees loved telling people to repent and, and do certain things. These kind of people love their religion because their religion basically says, do this, don't do that, keep these rules, and you'll be saved. Every other religion, including the Pharisees, is about self-salvation. It's what you must do to save yourself. And religious people love this about religion. Why? Three reasons, I think. Uh, first, we love works-based religion because we are very prideful people. And we have very high opinions of ourselves and our abilities. Just ask my wife. I think very highly of myself. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get better about it. But we're naturally sinners, and we naturally think 
we're big stuff. We think we're really important. We think that we're good enough and that we're smart enough and that we're strong enough. And that if we just try hard in ourselves, try hard enough, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? That's the, uh, that's the American way. So we love works-based religion because we think very highly of ourselves. We don't have a biblical understanding of who we are. Second, we love religion because religion gives us control. Listen, I hate not being in control. Don't you? You just you want to have control over a situation. You want to be the one pulling the strings and responsible for what's going to happen. We hate being dependent. We hate being weak. In religion, what it does is it gives us this false sense of control. It's up to us. If we do these certain things, we make these decisions, we'll be good enough and we'll be saved. It's in my hands. And that is very comforting to religious people. I'm in control. It's up to me. Third, we love religion like this because this kind of religion gives us power. Right? In two different ways. First, it gives us power over other people. We see this with the Pharisees. They had their religion, they had their rules, and they lorded it over everyone else who wasn't as good and who wasn't as holy as they were. Religion gives us this identity, and it gives us this sense of superiority over all those other terrible, sinful people out there that haven't figured out what we have figured out They're not as good as us. We, we have power over them because we're religious and we're good, so we're better than them. And we love feeling better than other people. But religion also um, gives us a sense of power over God. And this, listen, this is the very heart of what religion teaches. Because I keep the rules, because I'm a good person, God owes me. Religion gives you a claim over God. It gives you a right that you are justified to demand from Him. It says, I've kept the rules. You have to give me what I deserve. I've earned it. You owe me God. And this is related to the control aspect of religion. We need control. We need power to feel safe and secure. And who better to have control and power over than God? This is why people love religion. This is why we could say last week that Marx was pretty accurate in his claim that religion is the opium of the people. It is, because we take it and we shape it and we use it as a way to give us this fantasy that we are as important as we think we are and that we are in control and that we have all the power. Did you see the movie Invictus a few years ago? A very good movie with a very terrible philosophy behind the movie. Right, the title of the movie comes from a poem of the same name. And you hear the line repeated throughout the movie. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's basically the theme of religion. I don't care if you're traditionally religious. I don't care if you're an atheist. You basically believe the same thing. And Jesus shows up right here and he offends every single one of us. The good news of the gospel offends the Pharisees, it offends the religious people, because it says, you are not the master of your faith. Jesus says, I don't care how many rules you keep. He says, you cannot and you will not gain power and control over me. He said, it is not about being good enough, it's about me. You do a good job of keeping the law, you think? What about this one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that is the summary of the law. How are you doing without it? Jesus says you cannot be good enough. 
but I can, and I was. He says it's not about you, it's not about what you do, it is about what I have done for you. He says it's not about works, it's about grace. And religious people hate this, because grace destroys their false sense of self-worth. And it destroys the power and the control that they think that they have over God. Those are the two different ways that Jesus offends people. But their response is exactly the same. They hate Jesus. They want nothing to do with this man. So the non-religious and the religious get together at the end of our story and they conspire about how to kill Jesus. And as I've said before, that response to Jesus at least makes sense. Listen, I completely understand if you are terribly offended by Jesus and despise him and want nothing to do with him. That at least intellectually makes sense. That's consistent. Because Jesus says very offensive things and makes some very audacious claims like, I forgive sins, I'm the bridegroom, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to God except through me. No one in history has said such offensive things and made such claims about himself. If you don't like Jesus and you're super offended by Jesus, I understand that. And that at least shows me that you understand who Jesus claimed to be and what he claimed to do. And that's actually a much better place to be than where most people are with Jesus. You see, the vast majority of people are just kind of floating along somewhere in the middle with Jesus. Kind of mild appreciation. Kind of someone like passing interest, kind of lukewarmness or apathy. They, they, they kind of like him. He taught some good things. Seemed like he did some nice stuff, but eh, other than that, I, you know, what's the big deal? But listen, that's the response to Jesus. Though it's the majority response to Jesus, that's the one response that doesn't make any sense. And that response is so frustrating because it proves to me that you don't really understand Jesus and you haven't really encountered him. An encounter with the real Jesus never leaves a person unchanged. It either softens a heart or it hardens a heart. It's never neutral. We cannot encounter real grace and go away unaffected. It either terribly offends us and drives us away from God or it captures our hearts and drives us to our knees. We said it a few weeks ago that the only two responses that make any sense when it comes to Jesus is to adore him or abhor him. To fall down at his feet in worship or to completely reject him and hate him. So we've got to get off the fence. We've got to get out of the median. We've got to at least pick a side. Quit wasting your time floundering around somewhere in the middle with Jesus. Now don't hear me wrong. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and you know you're not a Christian and you're just kind of interested in this Jesus thing, you're kind of checking it out, you kind of want to see what this thing is all about, yes, great, excellent. We want you here. We're glad you're here. Keep coming. Please keep asking questions. Keep exploring Jesus. We're glad you're here. But I'm talking to those of us who claim to be Christians, those of us who have maybe come to church our entire lives, who once a week for about an hour and a half drag ourselves out to church because we feel like we should. Do we really adore Jesus? Has your life actually been changed by Christ? Neutrality makes no sense when it comes to Jesus. Indifference makes no sense. Listen, this isn't a game. 
This isn't some hobby that you occasionally play at. We're talking about eternity. He's either right or he wants it. This is life-changing, life-altering, life-consuming stuff. It is all or nothing with Jesus. So which is it? Are you the master of your fate? Are you the captain of your soul? If so, you're going to captain that ship straight to hell. Because Jesus says you cannot do it. There can only be one captain of a ship. And the captain is the one that is in charge. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers, Jesus is my co-pilot? What? <laughs> if Jesus is your co-pilot, who's the pilot? Right? That's a problem. That's a terrible bumper sticker. Jesus must be our pilot. He has to be the captain of the ship. The captain is the one that sets the rules. He's the one that determines the course. Is it you or is it Jesus? It's really that simple. Jesus is the forgiver of sins. He is the bridegroom. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our substitute, our Savior, and our Lord. And that is just in two chapters we've gotten all that stuff. There is no one else like this Jesus. It's not about how good you are. It is not about how many rules you can keep. Go back and meet a high school, right? Think about this. I had my 10-year anniversary, 10-year reunion was last fall, so I'm feeling pretty old. Um, 10 years out. It feels a long time. But do you remember high school English? Right, were any of you forced to read Homer's The Odyssey? Does anyone remember that story? The Odyssey. Homer, maybe the greatest ancient poet uh, that we know of, wrote two works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, two of the greatest works we have of ancient literature. Do you remember the story? All right, the Odyssey is the second. It's about this man named Odysseus. And all Odysseus wants to do is get home to his wife. Right, he's just trying to get back from war. And the whole story is this crazy adventure where he encounters all these crazy trials and different things. And it's just this major ordeal to just try to get back to his wife. But do you remember one of those stories? Right, they're sailing home. They're in the Mediterranean. And they've got to sail by this island. Trouble. Right? This isn't any kind of regular old island. Who's on this island? The sirens are on this island. Do you remember the sirens? The sirens are these beautiful women, all right? And they sing the most beautiful songs that have ever been heard. And men cannot resist the allure of these perfectly beautiful songs. So what happens is every time a ship sails by the island, the sirens start to sing this beautiful song. And the men cannot resist. And they, they steer their boats to the island. And they're shipwrecked. And it turns out that they're not these beautiful women. They're these terrible monsters that just want to kill everybody, basically. So how are they going to get past this island? What does Odysseus do? He takes wax, right? He melts it down and he shoves it in the ears of every one of his men. He completely stops up all of their ears so they can't hear the singing at all. And then he has them tie him up, hand and feet, and bind him to the mast of the ship so that he cannot move. He cannot escape. He can't even squirm. He can't do anything. And they sail past the island. They can't hear anything. They just keep sailing. And there's Odysseus, hearing every word, just straining with everything that he has at the ropes, trying to get out, trying to jump overboard, trying to get to the silence. That is how religion works. That's how the Pharisees work. Right? We, we bind ourselves up with all these different rules and, and regulations and all these ways to help us to attempt hopelessly to avoid temptation. But there's another story, an even better one. This, this one's about Jason and the Argonauts. Right? It's another great 
kind of story of Greek mythology. And they have to sail by the same island. The sirens, exact same situation. What are they going to do? Jason's a little bit smarter than Odysseus. And what does Jason do? He goes and he gets Orpheus. And who is Orpheus? Orpheus was the greatest musician in the world. And what happens? They get to the island. They're, they're approaching. And what do they do? Orpheus starts to play and he starts to sing a song that is so much more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And even though they hear the siren song, they're no longer attracted to it because this song is so much more beautiful that it captures their hearts and it captures their minds. And they want this song and not that song. That is how Jesus works. That is how the gospel works. The gospel sings a song that is so much more beautiful than the song of sin and enticement and of what we want. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. Listen, the goal of every sermon that we preach here, whether it's me or VJ or, or Jerry or someone else in this poll, but the goal of every sermon that we preach is to have you walking out of this room thinking about the gospel and how amazing it is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That is how God saves us and changes us. Not a list of rules that we must keep. Not a list of rules that we do and these things that we can save or change ourselves. That's what the Pharisees, that's what the religion gets so wrong. That's how Odysseus encountered the silence. But the gospel is different. We're changed by grace. That's Orpheus. That's what, that's Psalm 62. I love that song. Did you notice that it says Jesus is our delight? delight. It's not this rule kind of set of things like, oh, i got to go do this. No, it is our delight. It is the thing that we want to do. It is the thing that we cherish and treasure more than anything else. That's the gospel. It's been called the expulsive power of a new affection. We resist sin. The sin is still there. The temptation is still there, but we're able to resist it because we finally have our eyes open to see how much better this is over here. That's how the gospel works. Do not ever leave here thinking, man, I gotta, you know, I gotta keep these rules, I gotta get my life in order, I gotta start doing this, this, and this, you know, and then I'll be saved. No, we want you to leave here thinking, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the forgiver of sins, the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, He is so amazing. His song is so much more beautiful than the song of my sin and my own way. I want to know that man. I want to be saved by Jesus. It is all about the gospel and grace. That is why the Pharisees got it so wrong. Religion, we make it about all these rules. And the gospel is about the beauty of Jesus Christ. Leave this place amazed at Jesus Christ and what He has done on the cross sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we confess our sin. We confess that though we try so hard, though we think we're good enough, though we want the power, though we want the control, though we slip into that mindset so easily, Father, deep down we know that we cannot do it. We know that we are not good enough. So Father, we confess our sin. We confess our weakness. And we, we ask uh, for your grace. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Show us how much more attractive and beautiful the gospel is than sin, the enticements of this world. Father, don't let us become about a bunch of rules we have to keep. Father, I pray that we would be caught up 
in the glory of your story, Father, and in the beauty of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be working right now uh, in this room. Father, convict us of sin. Father, change hearts. Show us Jesus Christ, Father. We pray that you would bring dead hearts back to life. Not because of me, not because of anything that I can say or I can do, but because of you, because of who you are. Father, salvation belongs to you. We ask that you would work in hearts and you would bring people back to you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.